Our scripture reading, it comes from Revelation chapter 20, verse 11, all the way to chapter 21, verse 8. And the sermon title is The End of Suffering. Again, that's Revelation chapter 20, verse 11, to chapter 21, verse 8. This is God's holy and inerrant word, starting in verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and, do, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he was seated on the throne, said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the, father, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. This is the word of the Lord. We are continuing our Sunday morning teaching series on suffering today. And what we've been seeing is that if you count God out, the God who tells you what he's like in the scriptures, then what you're left with when you face suffering are ultimately unhelpful ways of thinking about it and unhelpful ways of dealing with it. But if you take God seriously, even though suffering itself is never good and is not what God initially planned in this, first, in, in this world, if you take God seriously, you'll find real resources in him and in his ways of dealing with it, ways that will actually connect you with him more deeply and make you more like him. Tim Keller has a very quick and better way of saying it. He writes, there is a purpose to suffering, and if faced rightly, it can drive us like a nail deep into the love of God and into more stability and spiritual power than you can imagine. And so the question then is, how do you get that? How do you experience God in the moment of suffering so that you know that he cares about you personally and so that he strengthens you 
to face what you're going through? How do you face suffering so that it drives you like a nail deep into his love? So that it gives you stability, so that it gives you spiritual power. So far, we've looked at two of those ways. We've looked at what happens in the present moment, and we've realized that you have to see that God is sovereign over everything that comes to you, that he has a purpose in what he allows and what he brings into your life so that you can have confidence that nothing comes to you that is not absolutely necessary for you. He is sovereign over all of the details of your life in the present moment. We've looked at that. We've also looked to the past, We've realized that his sovereignty is driven by his love, that he shapes and he molds all the details of your life according to how much he loves you. You see that in Christ. You see it there like in nowhere else, especially as we realized last week that when the choice came down to saving himself or saving you, that Jesus chose you, that he didn't let go of you even though he had to let go of his own life. That's the kind of love that you can trust now when you face things that you don't like, because you know that they come from that same heart of love, a heart that wants what's best for you even more than you want what's best for you. We've looked to the past, we've looked to the present. Today, we're going to look to the future, to God's promise that he is going to so thoroughly deal with suffering that no one will be able to accuse him of being unjust or unfair. And we're going to look at two aspects of that future. First, we'll look at the guarantee of future justice, and second, the result of that future justice. Just two things for today to help us deal with our suffering in the present, the guarantee of future justice, and the result of that future justice. First, God has allowed evil into his universe at this point. He realized that he let Satan live while Satan harbored evil God-hating thoughts inside of himself and while Satan conspired against God. Satan tempted other angelic beings to align themselves with him against the God who made them. If you read Revelation 12, you realize that those demons and Satan were cast out of heaven, but that heavenly realm has now been sullied with their rebellion. And so heaven now knows what evil looks like and sounds like. It's now tainted. It's no longer the way that God initially designed it to be, and God allowed that, just like he did with the earth. God made this world very good. He made it full of life and beauty, full of abundance and harmony. All of that's ruined now. We live daily with the result, the misery of a broken world that God allowed. God has permitted evil and suffering to enter in and corrupt what he made, but that does not mean that he approves of it. Also doesn't mean that he's going to put up with it forever. You see his passion to destroy suffering in Christ. Jesus spent his life relieving suffering. He restored sight to the blind. He cured leprosy, reanimated paralyzed bodies. He virtually ran to those who were hurting. And so you see it in what he did, but you also see it in the way that he felt about it. Right before Jesus raises his friend Lazarus from the dead, he meets Lazarus' sisters. They're weeping. And Jesus does not handle it stoically doesn't just stuff his emotions. Instead, Scripture tells us that he was troubled inside, deeply moved, and everybody around knew it because you could see it. You look up those Greek words in the lexicon, and you realize that they're almost too light in our translations. Those words mean that he was feeling a combination of acute emotional turmoil coupled with really strong feeling of concern 
combined with so much indignation that you could actually translate this more, a little more accurately as snorting angrily, just this very vivid anger toward what he was engaging. Not out of control, but if you're going to suffer well, you need to fix this mental picture of Jesus firmly in your mind. This picture of God being intensely, deeply upset as he comes into contact with the impact that evil has in his world. As death and the suffering that it bring come, brings come into his presence, it arouses his anger. And he acts to get rid of it, to remove it from his people and to remove it from his world. And so, yes, God allows evil and the suffering it brings, but he hates it. And he hates it passionately. And so there's a day coming when he's going to judge every last instance of everything that has been done that's wrong. A day when he will call out evil for what it is in such a way that there's no question as to what was wrong and who was responsible for the wrong. That's what verse 12 in our passage tells us. That there is a day coming when the dead, great and small, will stand before the throne of God and books will be opened. Now, those books represent God's perfect recall of everything that every one of his creatures has ever done. And those books then form the foundation, the basis of his evaluation of us as individuals. And so it goes on, the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And God is telling us that there's an accounting coming for every single person. An accounting where no one is overlooked and no one gets any special treatment. Instead, everyone, great and small, are judged. The rich and powerful don't get let off easy because they can buy their way out of it. And the poor and weak don't get special treatment because they aren't rich and powerful. Instead, everyone will be judged according to what they've done. And you realize that this is what our world is crying out for. It's crying out for that day when finally, somewhere, somehow, people are no longer able to get away with what they've done. A day when insiders can't pull strings behind the scenes and pervert justice. And when the less powerful can't blame shift. Can't say that the game was so rigged that they had no other choice but to do something wrong to someone else. That's what our world is crying out for. Justice that doesn't railroad people when there should be compassion. But justice that also doesn't argue that there are so many extenuating circumstances that someone's no longer accountable for what they did. Our world longs for the kind of justice where after the verdict is rendered, the person who's been judged has no other choice but to own what they've done. No other choice but to say, yes, that's me. That's what I did and that's why I did it. And I have nothing else to add to it. I have no excuses to offer, no way to avoid accepting it. It's what you hear, the cry for in our society. It's what we're hungry for. A place where the buck stops, where people are accountable for what they've said and for what they've done, for where they can't argue their way out of it. A place where justice is finally done and God says, that time is coming. I promise. A time when I will assess everything that anyone has ever done, ever done to you and ever done to anyone else. And I will declare whether it was good or bad in such a way that there will be no dispute. <laughs> a time when no one's going to say, but that's not fair. That's not the way it was. 
It's not the way that it affected me. That's not justice. I'm still owed something. Instead, it's going to be a justice that takes everything into consideration. Every possible element that went into what someone did. And God will deliver a just assessment, a righteous judgment. Don't you hunger for that? Want that in some kind of way? A time when all accusations will be settled once and for all. (laughs) A time where you don't have to guess at why someone did what they did. (laughs) Were they just being clumsy? Were they being forgetful? Were they intentional? Were they trying to hurt you? You won't have to guess. Because God, who knows the secrets of the heart, will lay bare what they did and why they did it, and you will finally have justice. And you'll know it. And so will everyone else. That's the good news. Here's the bad news. It's that the penalty for injustice is to be permanently alienated from God. It's that judgment gives the fulfillment of everything that your sin has said you want. See, your sin says that you want nothing to do with God and with His ways. That's what sin is. It's where I choose to do things, think things, desire things, that God Himself would not. It's where I've belittled someone like He wouldn't run them down when he wouldn't, hurt someone like he wouldn't. It's where I've closed my heart off to someone when he would have opened his, elevated myself, pushed myself forward when he would have pushed someone else, refused to help someone when he would have helped them instead. It's times where I have made sure I got mine, where God would have made sure that the other person got theirs. It's every time that I have put myself and my own interests ahead of his, where I've wanted my way more than I've wanted his, where I've wanted to rule my own life, be the king of my own life, rather than recognize he's the one who sits on the throne. It's a life where I call the shots, where I determine what's best and right for me, where I want nothing to do with him. And the day is coming when God says, okay, If that's what you really want, you can have it. I sentence you to an eternity away from my presence, away from every bit of me that values love and kindness to others, away from every shred of my goodness, my fairness, my justice, away from me in a way that no one apart from my son Jesus has yet experienced. See, only Jesus knows what that actually feels like to experience absolutely no part of God's goodness. That's an experience that none of us has ever had. See, God's presence on this earth is veiled. You don't get the full goodness of Him, but you still get a lot of of tastes of it. You get a lot of His care for people every day, even for those who hate Him. Makes His rain, His sun shine on the just and the unjust alike. So what would it be like to be separated from Him completely? Separated from the source of life who gave you life. Separated from the one who has thought more about you than anyone else ever has. Separated from the one who thought so much about you, put meticulous care into giving you every part of your body, every part of your personality that you have. 
What would it be like to be separated from the one who cares about you on a moment-by-moment -moment basis? Who makes sure that you have enough to eat? Who makes sure that you have a world in which you can live? Who makes sure that your heart keeps beating right now? Separated forever from the one who will drop everything to hear you right now if you want to talk to him. What will it be like to be separated from him? To no longer be an object of his mercy or his care. To have no sense of his love. No sense of his willingness to help. To have all of that gone. Scripture says that that's best described as endless, unspeakable burning. Like being thrown into a lake of fire. And here's the awful reality. Yes, God sentences people to that future. But the people who are sentenced there don't want anything different. Not if it means that they have to have him as well. You get a hint of that in the book of Revelation. The book lays out how God unleashes some of his judgment throughout history. That he doesn't hold it all back, doesn't wait for judgment day, but that he brings some of that future judgment into the present moment. And people who experience that judgment, who experience suffering that comes from him, discipline, they recognize it's from him. And yet they want nothing to do with him. And so when they experience the judgments of God, both on the earth and in their bodies, we're told, chapter 16, that they cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores and that they did not repent of their deeds. Those small tastes of judgment did not help them, didn't turn them around, didn't help them think that maybe they should consider a different way of living, a different way of relating to God. Instead, they saw it as one more reason to reject God, to hate him, to hate his way of life, his way of thinking, to hate the things that he values. And in the end, God gives them what they want, an eternity without him. The lake of fire is both. It is his judgment, and ultimately it's what they have aimed their entire life at, to be as far from him and anything to do with him as possible forever now there's a really important sliver of hope in this section which you and i both need probably at this point because it's pretty obvious that we've not always loved the things that god loves and that we often long to run our own lives rather than bow to him as the rightful king over us it's obvious that we've all done things that we're not proud of things that were wrong in our opinion, much less wrong in God's opinion, things that we know we ought to be judged for. So how do any of us dare hope that we won't be thrown into the lake of fire? It's because there are some who aren't. Those whose names, verse 15, that are written in the book of life. Now, if you're reading through the book of Revelation, you've already heard about this book of life. In chapter 13, it's called the book of life of the lamb who was slain. It's the lamb's book of life. Now, who's this lamb? It's the lamb that appears in the throne room of God in chapter 5. Lamb who is clearly alive, but equally clearly looks like he was killed. The lamb who everybody praises. They say that it was by his blood that he purchased people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Now, that word purchased is very important. It means that the lamb paid for these people. That he paid the penalty for what they had done. That he himself paid 
for what they did that should have excluded them from God's presence, for what they did that should have resulted in eternal punishment. But because he paid for them, when God judges, his justice demands that they not be thrown into the lake of fire. Now, why is that? Why is it that justice demands that? When we think of what Jesus paid for us, we often think of his mercy to us, of him taking our place. That's true. But when you and I sin, Jesus does not ask God for mercy on our behalf. He doesn't ask God to excuse our sin, to overlook it, let it go. Instead, what he asks for, in the right sense, what he demands, is justice. When you sin, Jesus says to God, Father, I paid for that. I paid for what he or she just did. I already experienced the burden. Your wrath, your anger against their evil, against their rebellion. I already experienced the absence of your presence. They rightly owed that to you and to your glory, but I already paid all of that. I already went through all of it for them, and you would be unjust now to demand a second payment. So, Father, you who always judge justly, you who always hand out perfect judgment, in your just judgment, I insist on justice for them, that they not pay what I already did. And God says that's absolutely right. Because they are in your book of life, because you purchased them with your blood, they owe nothing. Nothing to me, nothing to anyone else. My judgment on what they've done is paid in full. That what you have done, Jesus, completely pays for what they have done. And so they will not be thrown out of my presence. They will have my presence forever. They will see my smile. They'll enjoy my love because my justice demands it. In other words, at this judgment, there is justice both for those who are thrown into the lake of fire and for those who aren't. Those in the lake of fire get justice for what they've done. Those who God now lives with get justice for what Jesus has done. And it's this judgment that sets up God's, the next step in God's plan to reclaim his universe. Before sin entered this world, it was perfect. God made a world that he said was very good. He loves what he made. And he loves it so much that even after it's ruined, he never stopped dreaming about it. Never stopped planning, never stopped working in order to have it back, to restore it, to get rid of everything that ruins it. And this judgment that's coming is the next essential part of that restoration. It's point one, guaranteed justice for what he loves. So point two, how does this judgment create a better world? It's because the results of handing out justice do two things. It deals with the source, and it deals with the symptoms of evil. It gets rid of the sources of evil, and it gets rid of the suffering that evil causes. And both of those are necessary because it's one thing to oppose and defeat evil, but it's a completely different thing to so completely right the wrongs that have been done that those wrongs have no ongoing impact into the, the present moment or the future. See, this is where human justice always falls flat. 
It is possible to win a war, for instance. You can make an oppressor stop. But if all you're left with afterward is a destroyed battlefield, pockmarked with craters, blown up homes and buildings, displaced populations, food shortages, families who have, are devastated, who have lost children or parents, if that's all that's left, then yes, you've won. But the world is not the same as if the war never took place. And what's been lost can't fully be replaced. Sadly, that's the limit of what human justice can accomplish. We can, I would say stronger, we must oppose evil. We have to put a stop to it when we see it. But we don't have the ability to so completely restore what was damaged that it says, if there was no harm in the first place. No restitution on this side of eternity will ever be enough to bring back everything to where we started. We have to do something to try to help people put their lives back together after they've suffered. We have to try to provide some recovery for what people have lost. But humility demands that we also have to recognize our limits in restoration. We have to realize that human beings have the ability to break things, but we don't have the ability to restore things as if they'd never been broken. God promises something better than human justice. He promises that after judgment, the creation will be better than it ever was before it was broken. So much better that you have to say, chapter 21, verse 1, that what comes next, the heavens and earth that come next, are new. They're, they're radically and dramatically new. Not new in the sense that God scraps the old creation and performs a second creation out of nothing, a, a second big bang, if you will. But they're new in that it's a thorough renovation, a thorough renewal. So thorough that what's coming is not only better than what the world is like now, <laughs> it's better than the world that God made originally. Better than the one that he said was very good. The new heavens and the new earth are even better than very good. How's that possible? First, notice what God does when he finished judging. Verse 14, he takes death in Hades and throws them into the lake of fire. He takes death, both the power of death and the reality of death, and he casts it away from his presence. It no longer has any power. It has no hold over anyone in heaven or earth. Same with Hades, the place where people who don't know Christ go after they die while they wait for future judgment. But once God is done judging, there's no longer any need for this holding place. It'll never be used again. And so it, too, no longer has any power. One more. Drop down to uh, chapter 22, verse 1. You learn that there's now a new heaven and a new earth, but there's no sea. Now, why is that? It's because the sea was considered by ancient people to be the source of chaos. It's the source of unpredictable destruction. Just wipes out everything in its path. It was the source of evil. That's also not part of the new heaven and earth. It has no influence on what God is remaking. And so this is Revelation's way of saying that God is no longer going to tolerate any of the non-human sources of evil in his world. Death, Hades, the sea, 
they're all gone, cut off from him and cut off from the world that he's making. They're cut off, and if we'd been reading the book from the beginning, we'd know by now that the devil and his angels are also in the lake of fire that they're also cut off from God and his world, that they no longer have any power or influence on the world and this creation. And as we just read, so also are all human sources of evil. Saw that in chapter 21, chapter 22, verse 8, underlines it. We read there that the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now, if you think carefully about the way that list is framed, you realize that God is not focusing on individual specific wrong things that people have done. Instead, he's focusing on people's identities, on who they are, on who they have become. God is saying that they've so practiced doing certain things to such an extent that they've become those practices, that they don't even have an identity any longer apart from those things. And so God does not say, those who have done cowardly acts. Instead, he says the cowardly. Now, in the book of Revelation, that refers to people who were kind of associated with God and his people. But when persecution came, they pulled back and compromised with the world around them so that they could live easier lives here, so that they could go to work, live in their neighborhoods, send their kids to school without attracting too much unwanted attention. And God's not saying they did that once or twice, but that they made that a lifestyle, that they kept walking through life in that same direction, consistently choosing an easier life over being loyal to him responding to life in a cowardly way until that became a firmly fixed lifestyle. A lifestyle that so characterized them, it became their identity. Or God will say of others that they're not people who did one or two faithless things, but their life is characterized by faithlessness so that you can call them the faithless. And everybody would nod and say, yes, that description fits those people. It's the settled pattern of their life. They are faithless to God in every area of life. Or he calls some the detestable because they've dedicated their lives to doing vile things, one after another, after another, after another, after another. Others are murderers because the pattern of their life was to hate the people around them, to hate them so much that they just want to get rid of them so that they never have to deal with them again. Or God says that there are people who didn't do one or two sexually immoral things, but who practiced sexual immorality, who gave themselves to it until it was the defining characteristic of their identity, so much so they became the sexually immoral. All these, those who are defined by some pattern of living that hates God, that wants nothing to do with him, that refuses to repent, that refuses to submit to him as the king who sits on the throne, all these who are defined by the evil that they've given themselves to are sentenced along with the non-human sources of evil to no longer be in God's presence, to no longer have any power or influence in the world that he's restoring. Now just think about the implications there. That's incredible news. You're looking forward to a future where you're never going to come in contact 
with anyone who sins, with anyone who sins against you. That's great news by itself, but it's better than that because you won't sin and no one will try to influence you to sin. There won't be any examples of people who do wrong and there won't be anyone or anything that will ever tempt you to do anything wrong again. I don't know if you can imagine how radical that world is going to be compared to what you and I have known all our lives. God hints at it by ending the list with all liars. The portion of all liars will be in the lake of fire. What does that mean? It means that there will never again be a voice in God's world that challenges his. It means that what was true of this world, that the serpent was allowed to lie, to tempt Eve, allowed to challenge God's power and authority, allowed to challenge his right to sit on the throne, allowed to ask Eve, did God really say that you couldn't? It means that no one will ever say anything like that ever again. In this renewed, restored world, you're never going to be tempted to sin again. No one will ever sidle up to you in eternity and ask, did God really say? Instead, the only voices that you'll hear in eternity will all agree with God. They'll all reinforce just how good His ways are. God's justice will see to it. That's the first thing that God's judgment does. It gets rid of evil in all its forms, in all of its sources, so that there is no power left in the universe to challenge him or to challenge the beauty and the glory of his plans. It's so that nothing ever puts his world at risk again, so that there will never be a second fall into sin because they'll never be allowed anything into this world that will tempt anyone there to sin. That's amazing news. That's great news moving forward. But what about the past? What about all the things that you and I have experienced because of sin and evil in this world? The broken relationships that never healed right. The ones where you walk around on eggshells because you still don't trust each other after what happened. Or the broken relationships that don't get that far, of things said and done that were so bad you don't think that it's worth even trying. What about those past experiences? Or what about when people hurt you physically? Or took things away that were yours? Or didn't pay you back when they misused your things and broke them? Or when you felt squeezed by impersonal forces, like market forces, you watched your retirement, your savings account dwindle, and realized that the future that you had been planning had been taken away from you. Or when your ethnicity or your sex singled you out so that people targeted you, mistreated you over things that you had no control over. When social forces turned you into a second-class citizen, did not give you the same opportunities that other people have. Or when your own body fights against you, catches an incurable disease, turns cancerous, puts you through months and years of agony. What about all of that? What about all of those experiences you've had and the memories from those experiences that you still have? Okay, it's great news that there won't be any new evil to add to your past suffering, but what about what you've already gone through? Here's where your God is so tender. Look again at verse 4 and breathe this in. 
Let this tell you what God is like at his core. Let this tell you how he thinks about you, how he cares about you, and how he cares about what affects you, how he plans to, for you to not ever have to deal with it again. Verse 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. I want you to take a moment and just let that sink in. Don't push this away. Don't say that can't be true. Open your heart to this. God knows you have tears. That's what it says. He's aware of them. And they matter to him. And he's not okay that you would take those tears with you into eternity. And he has a plan. He has a way to deal with them. When he judges and gives you justice, your tears will be gone. His justice is that perfect. It's so perfect that you're going to say one day, I've been paid back so much for what was done to me. I have received such perfect justice, I'm no longer upset by what I went through. I don't have any tears. It's no longer a source of misery for me. doesn't even cause a twinge of sadness. There's no shadow of unhappiness that I have to tell myself to push away and not think about. Instead, I have no tears over anything. Because my God has not only taken care of all of my, any possible future suffering, he's even compensated me, somehow reversed my sufferings from the past. Let that sink in this morning. It's how much he loves you. There's a passage in J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings that just, I think, captures this perfectly. One of the chief heroes, little hobbit, Sam, has endured unimaginable pain and suffering. He's journeyed for months to the heart of where evil lives, has had to cross several kinds of harsh terrain. He's been in constant danger the entire time hunted by multiple enemies, betrayed by a traveling companion, seeing close friends die. He's been pushed beyond his limits, both physically and mentally, and the quest that he and his master Frodo were on came within a hair's breadth of failing at the end. When they do succeed, the world doesn't immediately get better, it gets worse, it erupts into chaos, literally comes unglued. Streams of burning rock pour down all around them, threatening to engulf them. They are sure that they're going to die. And the last thing that Sam sees or feels before he passes out is the darkness closing in. And then he wakes up in a soft bed under tree branches, gently swaying, sunlight filtering through the air has a sweet scent to it. And all of the horror of the past is driven from his memory for a moment. Then he meets a friend, Gandalf, who he thought had died, and he's dumbstruck because he realizes that what he has right now is even better than the forgetfulness of the past. Tolkien writes that Sam lay back and stared with open mouth, and for a moment, between bewilderment and great joy, he could not answer. At last he gasped, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. <laughs> but then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad 
going to come untrue. God's answer to you is yes. Everything said is going to come untrue. God will see to it. That you have no more tears. You'll actually be able to hear me. You'll have no more tears ever again. Not from the past, not from anything to come. You won't have any tears. And the wrongs that you have done to God's people will not cause tears for them either. His justice will see to it. And you know what knowing that does? It changes how you live. Not how you will live then, but how you live now. Revelation was written for people who are already suffering persecution, suffering at the hands of their society, and who in the sovereignty of God were promised even more suffering was coming. And so God opens this door, this window into the future, and gives them just this small glimpse of his future judgment. Not so that they'll know how to live then, but to know how to live now in the very real suffering that this world inflicts. And that first audience, their reality is your reality. In this world, you will suffer. And if you don't rely on a future of perfect justice where every tear you've ever had is wiped away, you will not be able to handle your suffering well. You'll be likely to pull back, to live fearfully of what might happen to you now. You will not live out of the certainty of what God will do for you later. Or you're likely to become harsh and prickly, protecting your own back so that you won't be hurt again. Insisting that people pay back to you what they owe now. Because you can't imagine a future justice that would even come close to making up for what they've done. Or you'll become cynical, jaded, doubtful, mistrusting of everyone, watching your back constantly, just waiting for someone to slip up and hurt you again. If this world is all that there is, if justice has to happen here or it doesn't count, you have no choice but to turn inward on yourself and be consumed with yourself. Don't put any weight on God's future justice, and there is no way that you'll be able to hear Jesus when he tells you, Luke chapter 6, to love your enemies, to do good to those who hate you, to bless those who curse you, to pray for those who abuse you. To offer the one who strikes you on the cheek the other cheek also. To not withhold your tunic from the one who takes your cloak. To give to everyone who begs from you. And to not demand back your goods from the one who takes them away. To lend, <laughs> expecting nothing in return. Because then your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. You can only do that. You can only be a disciple of this Christ. Only free and love to love and care for those who make you suffer. If you rely on a day coming when God will perfectly judge all evil and remove all suffering.
See, putting your weight on that future doesn't make you less engaged in this world. It frees you up to be more. It frees you like Jesus was free when he came here to love you, knowing that he would suffer, knowing that he'd be mistreated, knowing that he was going to be betrayed and beaten and tortured on his way to the cross where he would pay for you. He knew all of that was coming, but he could do that because as 1 Peter 2 puts it, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Entrust yourself to that same judge who will give you the justice that Jesus' sacrifice demands. Entrust yourself to that judge for that reason. It will change how you live here. You won't feel like you have to make anyone else pay. You can let slights and insults, you can let real hurts go. You can give yourself to caring for others who are also hurt by evil without worrying if you got enough for yourself. Focus on that future judgment and it will not lower your expectations for justice. You won't settle for the status quo of a broken world. You'll throw yourself into making this one better. You'll forgive those who have made you suffer. You'll advocate for those who are suffering. And you will care passionately that both of their names are found in the Lamb's Book of Life. No eye has seen and no ear has heard what you have prepared for those who love you. Lord, it is beyond amazing that you have entered into our lives and changed our hearts so that we do love you as much as we fail and as much as we struggle. And so, Lord, we come to you this morning not relying on the works that we have done, the things written in the books. We rely on what you have done, writing our name in your book. Lord Jesus, we are incredibly grateful, thankful for your sacrifice this morning. Grateful to be able to participate in communion. Thank you for this time. In Jesus' name. To sing to you out of love because you've loved us. In Jesus' name.